Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to our service this morning at Anchor Baptist Church, and I know it is Christmas Eve, and so we're really glad to see each of you here this morning. I do want to also mention that tonight at 7 o'clock, we will have our traditional Christmas Eve candlelight service, and this is something that we uh, we always do at 7 o'clock, so even though we normally have Sunday night at 6, we will move that to 7 o'clock, so please uh, mark that down, and we hope that you'll be able to be here tonight. There's uh, some wonderful music arrangements that are ready. Uh, we've got folks reading scripture. It's going to be a very, very uh, sweet time of reflection as we remember the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Josh has uh, our scripture reading, and then we will open up our service in prayer. And just Merry Christmas to all you that are visiting and that have family in. I have some family as well. Just Merry Christmas to all of you guys on behalf of the Linder family and Anchor Baptist Church. Our scripture reading is found in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Our theme for worship today, let's joyful, joyfully reflect on God's grace that provided our Savior. Please let's all bow together in prayer and uh, thank the Lord for this moment and ask him to really speak to our hearts through his word. Father, we want to praise you this morning recognizing that we celebrate this time of the year because that is the time that we remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, took on flesh. At a point in time, he came to earth, dwelt amongst people, went to the cross, was nailed to the cross, shed his blood on that cross for the remission of our sins. He rose triumphant on the third day. And because of his death and resurrection and his righteousness, we who are so unworthy to stand into your presence, we are invited and called beloved. We are righteous in Christ. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. And Father, we are so, so grateful for what Christ has done to bring us to yourself. I pray that this morning as we sing these Christmas hymns, that we would reflect deeply and joyfully on the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation, the significance of the incarnation, May you be truly exalted, and may we be uplifted as your people. We pray for those this morning who carry heavy burdens, such a busy time of the year. I pray that we would be able to set aside the cares, the frustrations, the anxious thoughts that sometimes crowd out the joy of this season. And I pray that we would, for these moments, reflect on the joy of Christ. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Good morning, Anchor Baptist Church, esteemed guests joined with us in person and online. Thank you for being here with us in worship. As we lift up our voices and give the glory, praise, and honor due to Christ, please stand with me as we turn to page 196 in the hymnal or follow along with me on the screen. We're going to sing all four verses of Angels We Have Heard on High. Sing it out, please. couple page over to 202. 202. Good Christian men rejoice.
please be seated. We'll turn to page 198. Page 198, it's somewhere in my hymnal. I keep going by it, there we go. Born to die, keep singing out.
good singing. We'll go to the scriptures again. And for the scripture reading this morning, we're going to go to Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. And the scripture says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. May the Lord add his reading, blessing upon his reading.
we'll take our hymnals out again, turn to page 194, or once again, follow along on the screen. Page 194, page 194, and we'll sing Joy, Joy to the World, all four verses. sitting in front of you, page 174, that's toward the back. If you're new, visiting with us, you can also follow along. But the, on page 174 in the blue book are the words in the music. So we're going to sing all three verses. I want to sing the last verse, a cappella, without the instruments.
stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. wondering on joy to the world why there was a, a gap it's because you were supposed to greet your neighbor but <laughs> we could do that if you want to we'll do that tonight we sing joy to the world tonight we'll we'll, we'll take a moment to greet our neighbors and our children are being dismissed to the back for their class and the rest of you I'd like to ask you take your bibles and let's all turn together to Luke chapter 2 this morning Luke Chapter 2, 
And we are reading verses 1 through 7 together. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Here's what the word of God says. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. All went to be tasked, taxed, everyone in his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Please, let's take a moment, bow together for a word of prayer and ask the Lord to really help us to understand a very important concept that gives us great strength and encouragement as we go through life. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for each person that's here this morning. We recognize that the decision to be here was guided by so many different factors. But the most significant of all is the fact that it is your sovereign hand that wants each person here this morning. You brought them here to hear this message at this time with lots of circumstances going on in lives and in this nation, and in the world. And this is the message that you chose to have preached at this occasion. And so I pray that as we reflect on how you very lovingly and mercifully and meticulously care for your creation, upholding all things by the word of your power, that we would see that the birth of our Lord Jesus at this time in history in this small town in Judea was a part of your plan. And I pray that we would recognize the rich, practical implications that flow from that concept. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. The passage in front of us is a fascinating passage. In fact, we don't know the exact day that the book of Luke was penned down by Luke. I say day. He would have spent a significant amount of time. He was gathering all kinds of details. And ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who is guiding him as he writes these words in Luke and then in the sequel Acts. But the timing was probably more than 60 years after these events that are recorded. To put that into perspective, those of you who remember what it was like in 1963... That's about how much time has gone on from the time that Caesar Augustus gives this decree and people are registered in their towns where their families came from and the Lord Jesus Christ is born. That's about the same amount of time that has gone on from the time that Luke writes these words and these events unfolded. And in fact, if you want to go back about 30 years, I can remember that one, then that's about how long it was from the time that Luke writes these words till the life and ministry of Christ. And so when these details are recorded, anyone who was reading the book of Luke or the book of Acts could go back and they could talk to people. Some of them even lived through these events. 
some of the people remembered very, very well what had taken place. It would have been an extremely disruptive moment in their history. It would have been something that probably caused a lot of people anxiety and anger and frustration. It was an injustice that people had to brute themselves just because this powerful dictator wants to register everybody so he can get money from them and just exert his power even more and more when he's already got enough power as it is. But I want to give you a summary of what I think the text is really all about. This text is about Christ's birth in Bethlehem rather than Nazareth and the historic details that facilitated the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy regarding his birth location as a powerful example of God's meticulous care in the story of redemption. What's amazing is as we read the stories of the Old Testament and as they move their way closer and closer to the fulfillment of all these things, each of these stories you have people making decisions and the decisions they're making, they're making of their own volition, they're doing what they think is best. Caesar Augustus had reasons for what he did and the people that were advising him at the time had reasons for what they were doing. But there is a hand behind the scenes that nobody can see on that side. But as we move on to this side of the story, we see the hand of God working in circumstances to accomplish his purposes. It is his care in all these details that is for the good of humanity. That is the point of the text in front of us. And I think as we look at this text, we'll see that God's desire for us is that we learn how to trust him. In all of his ways. Because indeed life is frustrating. And sometimes it appears out of control. But he still. He is still working behind the scenes for our good. And I hope to lay that out to you this morning. In a way that encourages you. That you can see it. And you say God help me to trust you in all the little details of life. Because in fact you still are in control. The first truth I want you to notice from this passage is that God's care in the world is meticulous and it is good. In verse number one, it says, It came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, a couple of things to consider. The statement in front of us is a simple historic fact. It appears to have nothing to do with God's meticulous care. It does not say in the text, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be tasked because God spoke into his ear and he said, hey, Caesar Augustus, I want you to send out this decree so that there is this couple that's living in Nazareth who's about to bring the Messiah into the world And the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. He can't be born in Nazareth to this woman, Mary. So I want you to disrupt the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people so that this can unfold the way that I predicted it several hundred years ago. That's not what took place. Caesar, Augustus, is sitting there going, I'm in control of a lot of people. I'm managing all kinds of industries and business and we've established roots all over the world and I'd like to know how much I control and I'd like to get tribute from those people and so we're going to send people to the places that they hail from and we're going to register them and I'm going to do it because I can do it and because I want to do it 
I mean, that's the way that people think in positions like this. There seems to be nothing in the text at a quick look that would say, God's hand is moving. This casual consideration appears to simply validate the timing of Christ's birth. And by the way, when Luke records those details, that is most definitely a major part of what he's doing. He wants the people that are reading this, specifically Theophilus, to understand this is a real moment in history. We can actually identify what was going on in the world at the time. You can talk to people. You can go back to records. You can verify that this took place so that he will know that Jesus of Nazareth really was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And this is the beginning of this story unfolding. The truths about how God works and are affirmed in this text can be seen in this little statement, it came to pass. Now, I know that's an English statement. And the original text is in the Greek. But the construction that is translated, it came to pass. And the book of Luke was used almost 70 times. And in the book of Acts, it's used over 50 times. It's a statement that Luke liked to use as he was talking about the story of the Messiah. And this statement is not just saying this occurred and so it's been documented and I want you to know that it's happened. But there's another piece to this because this is all the story of the revelation of Christ. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the triumph of the church as it takes the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And so this event is not just coming to pass because it just happened to be that way, but it's coming to pass because God is working in history to cause, to direct, to permit, so that things unfold in a way that fulfills prophecy. And by the way, we know that life in a fallen world is very hard. I mean, the Christmas season is very joyful for all the kids that are getting all their gifts and they're listening to the Christmas story and they're listening to the Christmas music and they put up their tree and the lights and all those things. But let's be frank, Christmas is really hard for a lot of people too. There's a lot of memories of people you love who are no longer with you. That's hard. There's the pressure of what we're going to get, all of the, the, the kids who are coming, and then there's the pressure of paying the bill next month when you see it on your credit card. And there's the pressure of those family members who are, you know, they're a little bit complicated to deal with sometimes. And oh, we spent too much time at this house versus this house, and we feel all kinds of pressures. And the simple fact is life is very challenging. It's a fallen world. And God permits people to make choices, to do things that they want to do that sometimes are painful to others. They are sinful. They are arrogant. People sin. Circumstances can be harsh. Injustices occur. And this is a great example of that. But what God allows, God never allows to thwart his purposes. God allowed this not just in a permission sense, but he used it to accomplish something that had been promised from the very beginning of human history. He has purpose to accomplish things in the world, and there's nothing that can stop it. No decision that an arrogant person can make that will stop God from doing what he has purpose to do. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, 
to them who are the called according to his purpose. And the purpose is he wants to take you and he wants to take me and he wants to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't begin without redemption. That doesn't begin without new life in Christ. And the bottom line is that God takes every single piece of our lives and some of them are painful pieces and some of them are embarrassing pieces and some of them are things that we don't like to recall, we don't like to remember, but God uses them to accomplish good in our lives and only he can do that. I want you to think about this concept for a few moments before we get deeper into the text in front of us. People who are arrogant, self-reliant, who glory in their autonomy. Nobody can tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. That kind of mindset, guess what? God can do anything he wants to those people. And we have a lot of examples in the Bible of him doing this. One example is a man named Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to hear how God speaks of this man, Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 43.10. Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones as I have hid, and they shall spread his royal pavilion over them. Or in Isaiah 44.28, it says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundations shall be laid. Or Isaiah 45, 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, who subdues nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings. That's a pretty interesting statement. Basically what he's saying is, this man will be so powerful... That when he goes to battle against a city, the rulers, the strongest, the mightiest, the wisest men of those cities, when they consider the implication of that man coming to take their city, they're going to be so terrified that their knees will shake in fear before this man. Well, you don't get a whole lot more terrifying than that, do you? Yet what is God? He's, he's my servant. Ezra 1 Verse 1, listen to what it says. Ah, amazing statement. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also into writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people, his people, or his God be with him? And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. I want you to think about how remarkable this statement is. This is the most powerful person in the world at the time, arguably. I know that there are other civilizations at the same time. But the fact is that this man, Cyrus, he controlled a massive, massive trek of land. And he had established his rule by conquering the Babylonians. 
And the Babylonians, when they came to Jerusalem, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, there was nothing left. And they took the best of the best and they uprooted them and they transported them back to Babylon. And essentially they did the best to their ability to brainwash the people who had been the rulers because they were going to send them back to their homeland and they're going to rule the people who still lived in those regions. These were people who were brutal. They were violent. They were harsh. Yet here is this man, Cyrus, who makes a proclamation. He's going to send the Jewish people who had been uprooted from their homeland. He's going to send them back to their land. He's going to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, their capital city, the rebuilding of their walls, the rebuilding of their temple. He's going to send a massive group of people back and he's going to ensure their protection in it. How in the world does a person decide to do such a thing? It's because that's what God chose to work in his heart. It says, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. It's not saying he spoke to him in all of a voice. But this thought popped into his head. And the more that it rolled around, and the more that he thought about it, he said, this is a great idea. This is what I'm going to do. God's hand was in those details. You might say, well, you know, a couple of examples in the Bible of that, but most of history is not like that. God isn't in control of everything going on in the world. That's not the way the Bible speaks of this issue. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Proverbs 21, verse 1, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, these verses don't in any way suggest that these people don't have the will to do what they want to do. What it does tell you is that what they can't see is that God is working still in the lives of those people. And through the lives of those people. And as we look back over history, we see the hand of God working in history to preserve humanity and to accomplish his purposes. And that is what he's talking about in these verses. In fact, it's kind of interesting. We have a new speaker of the house. And one of the first things that the speaker of the house said when he had the opportunity to take the floor (laughs) was to address the issue I'm talking to you about today. And he literally said... You are in these roles because God puts you there. You know how many people in the Congress in their hearts said, who is this person? He's the Speaker of the House. Whatever. And while they sneered, guess what? God said, actually you are. (laughs) And I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes. He accomplishes his purposes through things that seem very insignificant. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Ecclesiastes eleven five: As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the work of God, who maketh all. Proverbs 16, 1, The preparations of the heart in man, and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. These are amazing statements about how God works through ordinary circumstances. We're we're working through the book of Ruth right now on Sunday nights. We won't tonight, don't worry. 
but we're working our way through the book of Ruth. And I love this little statement in chapter 2, verse 3. It says this. And she, that's Ruth, went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. She just happened to end up in this place collecting the, the, the scraps in the field of a man who would one day marry her. And she would be a part of the lineage of Christ. And she just happened to be in that place at that time. Now, do you think it's just happenstance? The answer is no. It's exactly what God wanted to take place at that moment. Yet from a human perspective, the, the, the process wasn't like God told me to do this. And I see his hand making these things happen. But we, we step back and we look and we say, God, God works. It's his providence at work. Esther chapter 6 verse 1, on that night could not the king sleep and he commanded to bring the books of records of the chronicles and they were read before the king. And we know that that statement is a very important piece of the story of Esther. Last night I took my kids to IHOP and the little guys got chocolate milk and my son Owen last night was up for hours <laughs> and, and his brother's like, go to bed Owen. He's like, no, I'm going to stay up. And he flips the lights on. It's like 11 o'clock at night. You know, it's like, what in the world? And Deanna's like, did you give that kid chocolate milk? I was like, yeah, I didn't know he would keep him up all night. Well, anyway, I don't know what kept this man up. Is the invisible hand of God. God caused, through very ordinary means, this man to not be able to sleep. So that when he heard a detail about someone who had tried to kill him and Mordecai had spared his life, he would say, what happened to that guy? And they said, nothing. That's not right. It's just funny how it all fell into place at the time that it did. It's because God works in these ways. He accomplishes his good purposes despite the evil intentions of people. Now, I don't want you in any way to think that what I'm saying today in some way diminishes the evil that goes on in the world. I am not saying that at all. Evil is horrific. And the pain and the suffering that is caused by people with evil intentions in the world is extremely difficult for us to deal with. But I want you to notice the perspective of Joseph as he considered the evil of his own brothers. He says, as for you... Ye thought evil against me. That was the reasoning from a human perspective of why the brothers did what they did. They hated Joseph. They wanted to kill him. And then they said, you know what? Let's just sell him as a slave. We won't have to deal with him anymore. He'll be dead to us. We'll even make some money off him. We won't have to deal with him again. He says, you thought evil against me. I mean, you want to talk about something that would plague you the rest of your life? On both sides of that story? The brothers who had done this to him and Joseph who could have been bitter and angry at his brothers and he has the opportunity to do whatever he desires to them. He says, you thought it evil against me. He doesn't in any way diminish the fact that what they did was wrong. But God meant it unto good. Now, he didn't say God made the evil good. He says he meant it unto good. In other words, he used it to accomplish something that was far bigger than that moment. He used it to accomplish good. The reason God allowed Joseph to experience what he did wasn't because God's harsh 
and because God hates him, it's because God knows how the whole thing unfolds. And at that moment in history, he said, it's, it's going to be allowed because of what I'll accomplish in the big picture. That's an amazing thing. You and I don't have the capability to be able to make those kinds of assessments, but God does. And he says it's to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Even Acts chapter 2 verse 23, as Peter preaches, he says, Christ, delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands and have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, it was not possible that he should be holden of it. What does Peter do? He, he talks about the evil intents of man that God permits and the good purposes of God that take those things to accomplish things that are far bigger than that moment. You say, well, well pastor, do you understand how all this works? No, I really don't. And you don't either. The fact is, we see things a lot clearer after the fact, and we're in the midst of circumstances. We don't have enough perspective to understand what God's doing. But you could, you could, you've experienced this in your own life. If you've lived long enough to look at some of the hardships of your life and see how God used them to make you the person that you are today, to, to see how God has used it to bring you to become a Christian, or to bring you to the point where you became a, a kind of Christian that's actually growing and the kind of person that you should be, or how God has used it to make you to be a sensitive and gentle and kind person. Or how God has used it to teach you about his comfort. There's so many different ways that God has worked in our lives through difficult circumstances. And that's where we start. But the second thing I want you to notice is that Christ's birth is one of the finest examples of this fact. Fact number one, Joseph's decision to travel to Bethlehem while Mary was in the final week of her pregnancy was by force. Not Joseph's like, oh, I want to make your life miserable. Joseph had no choice. You know, there are a lot of things in life that you and I experience that we actually don't have any control over. You know that? Now, you know, people can say, oh, I can, I can do anything I want to do. I can be anyone I want to be. And that's just a lie. It's not true. You can't extend your life by one day beyond what God's determined it'll be. You can't make yourself tall. We can't make ourselves a little fatter, especially during this time of the year. But there are certain things we have absolutely no control over. We have no ability to stop them. God allows us sometimes to hit those kinds of brick walls to remind us of our humanity that we are creatures, not creator. And this is kind of one of those examples. It wasn't like Joseph could say, you know, Mary's pregnant. It's kind of a bad time. I don't think I'm going to go. Didn't work out that way, folks. The world was a different place in those days. The government could do things that this government's not supposed to be able to do. This was an authoritarian regime that could do anything they wanted. And Joseph couldn't look at them and say, I'm not going. It says it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. All went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Joseph wasn't the only one who had to take Mary. There were other women at the time who were pregnant, just like Mary was, who would have had the exact same experience. Some of them, it may have been even worse. The reason that they're going, humanly speaking, is because they had to. But there's another piece to this. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, yet Christ was born in Bethlehem. You ever kind of wondered, like, why she didn't give birth, like, on the way? 
<laughs> I mean, think about this, you know, how many times someone's getting close to, uh, to delivery and uh, go on a long trip and you get to your, your destination. It's like, all right, I, I'm, I'm in labor. They didn't get in the car and drive. They either walked or sat on the back of a donkey. It was a long, probably torturous trip. Yet instead of Christ being born in Nazareth, which would have been what, humanly speaking, would have or should have taken place. She was born, he was born in Bethlehem. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Third fact is this. These actions, while explainable on a strictly human level, were ultimately guided by God's sovereign hand. Micah 5.2 says the following, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou art little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. You may not realize this, but that was written 700 years before the fulfillment, 700 years. So this was written at a time of peace in Israel. This was before the destruction of Jerusalem. This was before the Babylonians came in and brought people into captivity. All that history, 700 years. Those prophecies in Isaiah about the Messiah, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Yet the fact is the timing of this was perfect. We read this text at the beginning of our service in Galatians 4 verse 4. It says this, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. The fullness of time means that there was a plan and there was a purpose and there was a timetable and God knew those things. Mankind didn't necessarily know all those pieces. But as things were playing out in time, God said, now is the moment when the Savior must come. We get kind of a glimpse into this in the question of the Magi coming in Matthew chapter 2. It says in Matthew chapter 2 that there were men that said, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, there came wise men from the east saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The question we should all ask is, where in the world did they get the idea that a Savior was going to be born in Jerusalem? How would these people, they were not Jews? Did they, how did they have access to the Word of God? What, what, what in their mind was going on for them to think this is the timing of it? They see this light in the sky and their conclusion is that the Christ has been born. How in the world is that possible? Well, the answer is that these are people who had access to some of the Scriptures. These were people who had, had access to Daniel's writings. And in Daniel's writings, there are some fascinating things that are written that tell us about the timing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel 9, 24 says this, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, upon the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Now, listen, when Daniel wrote that, he was writing that in captivity. When Daniel wrote that there was no temple, 
because it had been destroyed. When Daniel wrote that, the walls of the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The, the, The city had been sacked. The people had been uprooted from their homeland. And then he goes on to say this. Now, know therefore and understand, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be 70 weeks, three score, and two weeks. I'm sorry, seven weeks, three score, and two weeks. The streets shall be built again, the walls even in trouble sometimes, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now, I'm not going to do all the math for you, but I'm going to put it this way. For those people living in that region to read about a prophecy that had been made hundreds of years, 500 years before the fulfillment of these things. And first of all, he states, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. They they said, really? We don't normally do that. The temple's going to be rebuilt. Really? We don't normally do that. And there's going to be a king who's going to be born in that place. And he even gives the timetable of this taking place. Most people would have said, preposterous. We don't believe it. It's not going to happen. But what's very interesting is as Daniel writes these things, there were other things that he wrote as well. He predicted the rise and the fall of Babylon, Persia, of Greece, of Rome. And there were some people that started reading these prophecies and they said, you know, it's really interesting. What this Jewish man wrote has happened. Maybe this last piece will happen too. And these people understood That they were coming to the time when this would be fulfilled. You say, well, why didn't they know he'd be born in Bethlehem? Well, Micah wasn't written in their region. They wouldn't have had access to it, very likely. And so they went to the most natural place you can think of, Jerusalem, the place where kings lived and kings ruled. They went to a ruler who was not a Jewish ruler over his people, like you would think traditionally. And they said, where is this, this one who's been born, king of the Jews? What's the point? The point is, this happened in the fullness of time. This happened by God's design. Even the timing was significant. So it leads me to a final question. Seeing what we see in the text in front of us, how do we live based on these things? I'm going to give you a couple of simple thoughts that I hope will encourage you this morning. The first is this. We need to have our confidence in the redemptive story strengthened. One of the most, one of the saddest things about the Christmas season is that a lot of people come to the Christmas season thinking this is simply a Western tradition that has not been rooted in history in any way. We do all these things because we're Americans, we're, we're Westerners, and, and this is just a, a, a you know, Christmas is kind of like that sort of a celebration. And I know it's true that there are a lot of Christmas traditions that that really is the case, okay? I do understand that. But when we talk about the events We're talking about something that really happened. We're talking about a real moment in history. It was promised. It was fulfilled. It was documented. It was verified. When Luke is writing, Luke was writing in the same kind of way that a historian at the time would have done this. He researched this. He talked to people. He asked them questions. And then as Luke writes these things down... He is writing them down by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But don't don't underestimate the side where he literally had conversations with volumes of people. 
And he takes the time to record all kinds of important details because he is making an attempt to verify and document a moment in time. This isn't just something we feel in our hearts, folks. This is a real moment in history. Our faith is built on a person who lived 2,000 years ago and died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so our faith should be strengthened. Secondly, we should walk with this humble confidence in the way that God works rather than doubt and fear. He kindly cares for us in the midst of a fallen world and our lives are entirely in his hands. Now I know that there are things that are very difficult to grapple with that we deal with in life. I mean, it's, it's enough when we have made poor decisions ourselves and we deal with the harsh consequences of those decisions. But when someone has wronged us, well, that's much more difficult to deal with. And we go, why in the world did God not stop this? Why did he permit this to unfold as it did? And one of the things we have to learn to do is recognize that God can take anything in our lives and use them to accomplish good. And so we need to learn to look and say, God, what are you bringing out of these things? What are you causing to come to good out of this set of circumstances? We tend to look at something always on the negative side. I feel this, I saw this, I experienced this, this was wrong. And we go through all of it in these ways. And sometimes we need to step back and go, but God, there is another side to this story. What are you doing in the midst of this? And all of a sudden we step back and we start seeing things that he's doing. And we realize those things are good. And we praise him because of the grace that he that he pours into our lives and the strength that he gives us and what he accomplishes through us. We need to be a people who take personal responsibility for what we do. The fact is that this God who governs the universe is going to hold you and me accountable for the decisions we make. There are lots of people that God has permitted to do as they wish. And one day he will say, now you give account for what you did with that freedom. That's a terrifying thing to consider. A lot of people live as if there's no God, there's no eternity, there's no justice, there's no final day they'll stand before him. And when they come to realize they were wrong, it will be too late. We need to rest in God's justice. He will do right in all things. And we need to rejoice in how he masterfully works in the world. As we think about this passage, the more that we dig into it, the more we see the power of God in it. We see God's wisdom. We see his care. We see his restraint. We see how he comforts. We see how he pours grace into the lives of these people. We see this amazing display of how God works in a fallen world. And what we should walk away with is saying, God, you're working in my life too. And I've got to learn to trust you in the midst of that. Could be that there's somebody in this room this morning that, you know what? You're really struggling in these areas. And I want to encourage you, turn back to God with a heart that says, God, help me to see the good you're doing here. Help me to trust you when I can't see everything that's unfolding. There might be somebody here that says, I'm not a Christian. I've always believed that Jesus was a myth, something kind of legendary, you know, a story that we talk about in Western circles. I never thought of him as a real person. I most certainly don't believe he died on a cross or that he needed to die on a cross or that he rose from the dead. 
Yet the way that the scriptures present this is very, very clear. It's unmistakable. This is a real person who really came. He really died. He really rose from the dead. And he alone is the one who can give you salvation. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Before we close in prayer, I want to ask a question or two here. Is there anyone that would say, Joel, as I think about this passage, I, I am dealing with some situations that are very hard and I'm struggling to trust God. And I really needed to hear that this morning. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to come forward and meet with anybody. I'm just going to ask it to acknowledge, yes, I'm struggling and I need prayer. And you know, when I close in prayer, I will mention those who are struggling. Anybody like that would say, that's me, pastor, I'm struggling. I see, yeah, I see several hands, a lot of hands, a lot of hands. God will give you grace. God will give you strength. If you need to talk to somebody, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'd be very happy to sit down with you, even the day after church if you need that. Second question, is there anybody here that say, Joel, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior, and I really need to talk to somebody about that. I've never understood the gospel. I never really thought that Jesus was a real person. There's really a cross and an empty tomb, and I need to talk to somebody about that. Anybody like that? Raise your hand quietly. Say, I need to speak with someone about this issue. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? If you want to reach out to me by email or whatever, I'd be happy to set up a time to speak with you about this issue. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God. This is a very, very important piece to a biblical worldview. I pray that you would help us to recognize that this world is not a world of random chance, but it is a world that was designed by God and that is upheld by the word of his power. That God is not aloof, but he's personally involved in our lives. He takes even the most difficult of circumstances and he uses them to accomplish good. And I pray that we would learn to trust you in that. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please, let's take our hymn books out and let's turn to hymn 227. 227. Who is he in yonder stall? Let's stand together and let's sing it out, please. And I want to remind you that tonight we will have our candlelight service at 7 o'clock. And it is always a, a wonderful time. The music will be beautiful. The singing will be beautiful. And uh, it'll be just a great time of uh, spending time reflecting on the reason that we celebrate this season. Let's sing it out. 227.
Brother Hugh Mason, can you please come close us in prayer? And uh, so glad that you can do that for us. Let us pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the many wonderful blessings that you bestow upon us. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us through this year that you've given us. Because, Lord, we deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. Thank you, Lord, again, for the families, the love. Thank you for being born and dying on the tree for us. Thank you, Lord, for the many wonderful families and who are going to be together around your birth today. Thank you, Lord, for everything you give us and pray, Lord, that you would keep us safe this afternoon and bring us back tonight for our candlelight service so we can continue to restore the praise and glory upon you that you deserve. We ask these in Jesus' precious name, amen.